0: all right i'm recording you don't have to sean i'm
1: recording (laughs) he sounds so begrudgingly you don't have to record i'll take a transcription of what you say okay and then i'll hire a voice actor to enact what you're saying to hide your identity
0: i actually pre-wrote my entire script for this episode already so i'll just email it to you okay cool can I interview the voice actors beforehand okay. though? Just to see like who's yeah. going to capture my essence the best?
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Welcome to I'd Buy That For A Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, spectator of unexpected but impressive everyday catches, Peter Cook.
2: Did you see that? It was pretty good. Yeah.
0: I didn't see it coming, personally.
2: I didn't either, but I saw it. I
0: mean, you see it every day, but you just don't know when it's going to happen. And sometimes you just got to sit back and watch.
2: Exactly.
0: Yep. We're also, of course, as usual, joined by the third string dishwasher for various unimportant diplomats, Jeremy Ruggles.
1: I'd be your wingman anytime, Maverick. (laughs) (laughs) You guys get that? Top Gun? Yeah. Who said it though?
2: Tom Cruise?
1: No, Val Kilmer, Iceman.
2: Ah. Oh, wow. How long were you planning that one?
1: Uh, Since we took a 10-minute break (laughs) before doing this episode.
0: (laughs) You boys remember when we first started talking about doing this podcast? About 40-odd episodes ago? I I remember one of the things we discussed early on, Jeremy had read some... uh, blog post how to become a rich and successful podcaster and one of the things they recommended was to not make episodes much longer than half an hour because people would stop paying attention we've gone over a half an hour a lot lately and i believe that peter has promised that he's going to keep this episode brief and personally i've always thought that if you could be one thing you should be efficient so peter pitter patter
2: let's get at her so we're going to be doing the ice man's band today thanks for the little teaser from jeremy on that one this is introducing the ice man's band it was released on mercury in 1972 and i just want to get into things by playing their version of the lennon mccartney classic come together which is side one track two jeremy if you don't mind
0: please and thank you
2: please and thank you
0: First off, that ruled. And I am here for pretty much every soul jazz cover of a Beatles song. But I got a question. Who is the Iceman and how is he related to the Eggman? (laughs) The Iceman is a
2: man by the name of Jerry Butler. Mm, The original
0: Impressions lead singer, Jerry Butler.
2: Oh, you know it. Do you know who else was in the Impressions, Mm, Sean? No idea.
0: (laughs) (laughs) i only know that jerry butler was in the impressions
2: (laughs) there's another guy named curtis mayfield who was also in the impressions
0: oh he did a few things here and there right
2: i think so and i would say he's probably the better known name of those two (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) jerry butler was a chicago singer the original lead singer of the impressions as sean said And he went on to great success as a solo artist as well, although he seems to be largely forgotten. And due to his vocal delivery being so cool and mellow, Jerry Butler had been dubbed the Iceman by a Philadelphia disc jockey named Georgie Woods, while Butler was performing in a Philadelphia theater and the name stuck. So these guys were Jerry Butler's Backing band, Jerry the Iceman Butler. So they were dubbed the Iceman's Band. And this is their only full length release under that moniker. It was produced by all four members of the Iceman's Band.
1: Guys, we have a problem. We have a problem. What's that? See, when I was trying to do some research, I just typed in Iceman in Google. So all my notes here are on Richard the Iceman Kuklinski. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know who that is? You, should have, just, oh, you should have just presented all those
0: facts as if they were canon, and we, should, we would, should have just rolled with it.
2: Yeah, it'd be something to talk about in the future. He was a hitman. <laughs>
0: that's why they call him the Iceman. <laughs> and do they call Jerry Butler the Iceman because he was just straight up murdering these tracks? oh
2: yeah damn
0: presume yeah it makes sense all right cool well there's the crossover we figured it out
2: i I actually saw a movie about that ice man but it wasn't by accident when i was researching this episode it was a few years ago (laughs) (laughs) they did make a movie about that ice man though jerry butler He was an entertainer and an entrepreneur. Uh, He was quite the entrepreneur, actually. He was very career-driven. He ended up being a Cook County commissioner from 1985 to 2018. But back when he was a vocalist, he thought if his backing band cut an album under their own name and established their own identity, he could book the Iceman's band as one of his opening acts, as well as his backing vocal group, which was called Peaches, not to be confused with the uh, Teaches of Peaches that we probably all remember from the 2000s. <laughs> this was a group that consisted of Brenda Lee Ager. She was the lead singer of Peaches, as well as Deidre Tiggs, Carolyn Johnson, and Jerry Butler's sister, Maddie Butler. And they never Peaches never released a full LP, but did release some singles this same year. So you can see traces of this plan for both opening acts. I, I think kind of, I'm not 100% positive on this, but I think what he was planning was the Iceman's band would come out and open the show as the opener. And then Peaches would join and do some solo or, or original songs of theirs or songs that they had recorded. And then Jerry Butwood would come out, kind of like the Talking Heads do on uh, Stop Making Sense, where the band kind of builds up throughout the performance. If, if you've seen, I'm sure both of you have seen Stop Making Sense, the, the yeah. Talking Heads. I mean, film.
0: I saw it for the first time maybe a year ago, but I have seen it. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah, I was way late to the party on that one and i just don't know why because i've loved the talking heads for a really long time
2: <laughs> huh. wow i didn't realize that we should have watched that when we lived together
0: yeah i know it, it makes no sense why it took me so long to watch it but whatever so
2: i think that that was kind of the idea though was to have this big you know sort of like vertical integration almost with you know the concept of controlling all aspects of production if if everyone that's in his opening act is on his payroll you know all the better Mm -hmm. and so actually peaches the women singing in peaches are featured on a few cuts on here it's not all just instrumental and i'd like to play a version of the jerry butler hit single never give you up that's on this album that features uh peaches as well let's do that next that's side one track five
1: when listening to this album the biggest thing that jumped out to me was the production and how clean and how like right up front everything sounds I'm not sure if that makes sense but everything feels like very distinct and clean and uh, simple I'm not sure if that uh, clicks with you guys, if that tracks, but that, that makes sense
0: because that's kind of what you would need from a band that's primarily backing up a soul singer. You know, they can't be too busy, they can't be too flashy. They're there as you know the the vehicle for the singer.
2: Yeah, and it's I think it's very direct. I think that's a good way of putting it.
0: But it's also much more jazzy than I would have ever expected. I don't own this record. I've seen it a bunch. I've never bought it because. Honestly, I'm not the biggest Jerry Butler fan. I mean, I like him. I respect him. It's just not the vocal style that I usually get excited about. So I just assumed that this was a Jerry Butler record. <laughs> and if I would have known it was a really good soul jazz record like this, I would have bought it a long time ago and definitely gonna have to keep an eye out for it now.
2: Yeah. Jerry Butler is on the cover. Like he's conducting that. Right. And they're all standing around like an old fire truck. And... That one the song we just listened to was a big hit for Jerry Butler. It was written by him along with Gamble and Huff, a songwriting team credited with developing the Philly sound. Have mm-hmm. you heard either of you heard of Gamble and Huff?
0: Oh yeah, legendary songwriters.
2: Yeah. And it's funny because that version right there, I think it's essentially, you know, Jerry you could almost like karaoke Jerry Butler over that version because <laughs> it's like instrumental verses but then the the peaches are are singing on the uh, chorus at first i was kind of confused because i wasn't familiar with that hit song going into this record and i was like these they sound really good but like they don't feel like complete vocal songs and then i once i did more research i realized oh it's because they're kind of giving you a, a, a taste of the song without jerry butler yeah totally that one reached number 20 for, for Butler, his his v- vocal version on the Billboard charts in 1968 and appeared on his album, The Iceman Cometh. Of course, he had to have an album with that
0: name. Mm-hmm. I do like that album. I've got that album, by the way.
2: Okay, I need to, I mean, I've heard, you know, a few songs from it, but I I need to check that out in full. His version was recorded in Philly with Philly session players. But, of course, here, this is a few years later, this is 1972, and this is who was his backing band in that time. So let's talk about those players a little bit. On keys, we have Reginald Sonny Burke. And he also worked with artists like Stanley Turrentine, Dizzy, Gillespie, <laughs> I almost, I almost question the pronunciation of that.
3: <laughs> um,
1: for, our, for our listeners, they probably don't know because I edit out me sounding like a dumbass wherever possible. I like miss say that every time it comes up. <laughs> Gillespie. So,
2: yeah, uh, Sonny Burke has worked with Stanley Turrentine, Dizzy Gillespie, and John Handy. He also wrote songs for another Chicago group called Earth, Wind, and Fire. We heard of them at all. <laughs> Including Serpentine Fire.
0: Oh, okay. What's up? Mm-hmm. Right, right.
2: Yeah, big connection. I also wrote for Dusty Springfield and Smokey Robinson. So, hell yeah. He uh, he worked with Yeah, he worked with some names. On drums we have Ira Gates. Did find a little info on Ira Gates. And I should say I'll I'll say this now. There is not a lot of information on this album or band. Like there's not an all music article There's very little information, so I had to piece it together from Discog's information and a few interviews I was able to find. So, kind of putting it all together here, this is kind of an I'd buy that for a dollar original to some extent as far as how much information you're going to get on the Iceman's band. On drums we have Ira Gates. He was born in Belzoni, Mississippi in 1941. He also worked with blues musicians such as Mississippi Charles Bevel and Mighty Joe Young, not to be confused with the movie Mighty Joe Young. He taught music at Malcolm X College in Chicago later on and passed away in October of 2001. As far as I could tell, all the other Iceman's band players are still with us. On bass, we have Wayne Douglas. And he played in a Chicago group called Black Magic. And around the time of this release, he was working with Jerry Peters from Black Magic, as well as with a jazz singer named Gloria Lynn. He did session work later with a number of artists, including Patti LaBelle. Uh The guitarist, yeah, yeah. These players definitely worked with some, some other big names. The guitarist was the person I could find the most information about. And that's Robert Boogie Bowles. <laughs> he has worked with the Pointer Sisters, Minnie Ripperton, Tavares. He produced and arranged their number one hit, Check It Out, amongst many other things. He was also the guitarist on a little track by Gloria Gaynor called I Will Survive. I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> Not the cake version, Jeremy. And he also worked with Yvonne Elliman. He's the guitarist on If I Can't Have You from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack.
1: Now I feel the need to clear this up. I don't like cake. Okay, listeners? (laughs) It's fine. I don't know why Peter said that. I don't really listen to cake or like them.
2: Yes, and that's why I had to banter a little bit. Did I banter proper?
1: You did or it were well. You just, yep. Okay.
0: <laughs> you effectively got under Jeremy's skin, so you did it. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Well done.
2: He did have to clarify things. <laughs> but most notably, uh, Boogie Bowles, Robert Boogie Bowles, worked with Smokey Robinson for decades. Okay. Uh, he was his guitarist. He might, like, up until recently, or maybe still is even working with him. I don't know how active Smokey Robinson is today. Boogie put out a memoir a few years ago called behind the boogie, how I became guitarist for a Motown legend. And unfortunately I discovered this book yesterday (laughs) in doing research for this episode. I only learned of this book yesterday, so I wasn't able to acquire a copy in time, but you know, luckily you can sometimes do sneak previews of books and I was able to get some information from it.
1: You got the cliff notes version. I'm feeling the need to share this smoky Robinson story. Because it was probably the worst concert I've been to. Definitely, like, top five worst concerts I've been to was Smokey Robinson about five years ago. And he was playing at, like, the San Diego Fair. And it was on this big, like, horse track or something because it's a fair. (laughs) And he's up there just, like, talking about the good old days. Mm Mm-hmm. And he'd talk for like 10 minutes and then they'd play like a minute of one of his famous songs and he wouldn't even finish it. He would just like play a recognizable amount of it and then just kind of like start trailing off into talking about the good old days again.
2: (laughs) That sounds like the best concert ever to me.
1: Oh, it was not good.
2: Well, I didn't realize we were taking down Smokey Robinson on this episode. <laughs> no,
1: I like Smokey Robinson. That's why I was there. But yeah. <laughs> it was disappointing to see. It's like like I've heard Bob Dylan's not that bad nowadays, but I won't mm. go and see cuz I, I Yeah, I had take an,
2: it. a I had a not great Dylan concert experience in 2004 where it was very underwhelming and I've heard he can be hit or miss nowadays, but um yeah, I haven't felt the need to try again. So I hear you. Boogie Bowles has the distinction of being the white member of Jerry Butler's Iceman's band. And uh, yeah, Jerry Butler said people referred to Boogie as that bad white boy who used to play for him. And they would ask what happened to Boogie and Butler would say that Smokey Robinson stole him away.
0: <laughs> Dang. Harsh. <laughs> Epic rivalry. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I have a little little info on on Boogie. We'll talk a little bit about him just because he was the person I could find the most information about. He was born in Charleston, West Virginia in 1943, and he learned a few guitar chords growing up in a musical family. Uh, they moved to Jersey, and in, when he was in his er- early adolescence, they moved to Jersey. And at the age of 17, Boogie discovered jazz via Wes Montgomery hey look at that there's a a tie-in to uh I meant to mention that one of the reasons I picked the Beatles cover up front uh was because it kind of reminded me of when we did the A Day in the Life album by Wes and you know first you get the uh the verse that follows the song really closely and then they start to stray off into that jazz territory and at first I thought I don't need to hear another version of come together. And then they started grooving and I was like, Oh, I think I'm going to feature this one on the episode.
1: Yeah. Killer version. Love those tie-ins. Mm-hmm. So
2: Wes, yeah. So Wes Montgomery was kind of what, uh, got boogie into jazz and his love for jazz took him to Berkeley college of music in Boston. And he started, kind of you know making his way around the music scene there and as well and a black r&b singer named jimmy merritt asked boogie to back him at a local club and gave him a stack of r&b records to learn specific songs by artists like otis redding sam and dave aretha franklin joe tex james brown and jerry butler in the impressions and boogie immediately felt an affinity for the music and so, yeah, he gigged around Boston with various groups, and when a certain artist named Jerry Butler visited town, Boogie was approached to perform guitar for Butler for his Boston gig, at which an offer which he, of course, accepted, and Butler was so impressed with Boogie that after the gig, he asked him to become the regular touring guitarist for his backing band. And Boogie actually says he was initially resistant as he was finishing his last semester at Berkeley at the time, and... And told uh, Jerry Butler he couldn't commit to anything else just yet, but he thanked Butler for the offer and gave him his address. And a few weeks later, Jerry Butler sent him a Christmas card asking if he was ready to go to work (laughs) and uh, then personally paid. Butler personally paid to fly Boogie into Chicago. And so Boogie took him up on the offer and became a part of Butler's backing band. And there are a number of stories that Boogie shares regarding his time working with jerry butler which i think was seven years he said i'm guessing it was around 1968 to 1975 or so that he was playing guitar for him but one that stood that stood out to me that i'd like to tell real quick is uh from 1970 jerry the iceman butler had been invited to perform in atlanta at a convention of the congress of african people a group that was a proponent of black nationalism and there were several influential members of the black power movement Present, including Louis Farrakhan, who was scheduled to speak following Jerry Butler's performance, and although they had been assured by the promoters and organizers of the event that they would be fine, Jerry Butler started to express concerns about how the crowd might react to his interracial backing band. Of course, Sean, you talked about on the uh, Chambers Brothers episode about how in the in the South in the in the late '60s and early '70s that it you really couldn't tour as an interracial band in the South at that time. Yeah.
0: The, the Jim Crow laws were particularly harsh against interracial bands. It seems.
2: Yeah. So in this case, they're worried about the, uh, the climate at this uh, fairly radical black power event, And just before the band were about to take the stage, civil rights leader Whitney young was booed off the stage being called whitey young by the audience due to him possessing what some believed moderate views for a black leader. Mm. And so Boogie, the guitarist, the white guitarist Boogie was nervous, but sucked it up and walked out on stage to set up his amplifier. As soon as the crowd saw him, people began shouting to get that whitey off the stage. And uh, Jerry Butler says that if it had been him, he would have packed his his grip and said, adios. But Boogie was a real trooper and plugged it in his guitar and looked at Jerry and asked, what are we going to do, ice? To which Jerry responded, get your crazy ass off stage before we all get killed. <laughs> and the band, the band bolted off stage. Jerry Butler did not perform. And Farrakhan went on to speak. And that was it for that event for them. <laughs> Quite a story. I'd like to play another track at this point. I would like to hear the Iceman's band rendition of Mr. Dream Merchant, which is side two, track one.
3: you.
1: Creepy breakdown in the middle there. What was that? Uh, yeah. What, <laughs> what was that about, Peter? You know, I'm not exactly sure.
2: I don't recall hearing. Cause, so this was another instrumental version of a Jerry Butler song, a song that Jerry Butler had recorded and had some success with in 1967. But I don't recall his version having that eerie, creepy breakdown necessarily or at least not to the extent that it happens there that base part that we heard in that breakdown was sampled by dr Dre on the chronic
0: Whoa. and
2: uh, yeah i mean and it, it, it and at cypress hill uh, cypress hill <laughs> cypress hill used a uh what do you call that an interpolation where it's replayed uh, it's not a, you don't actually directly sample it, but they they did a replayed version of that bass on one of their tracks as well, and it, you know it definitely sets a certain tone, especially on like a hip hop track, is kind of menacing.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's got that dark Herboding. stone soul jazz vibe going.
2: <laughs> I like what Jeremy said about uh, he, you said Jeremy, you were saying you could pick up on the uh, West Montgomery tone guitar tone influence on that one.
1: Yeah, I think they owe him some royalties just on the guitar tone alone.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Boogie Boogie said that was kind of where his love for jazz came from. And, you know, we here's two soul jazz. I, I would argue this is a soul jazz record just like the last one that we did.
0: Oh, hundred percent. Yeah.
2: So you're getting your fix of it,
0: Sean. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm ready for more of it too. I don't give a damn. <laughs>
2: Yeah, there's plenty of it out there for us to uh, to get into. I can't wait to do Ramsey Lewis.
0: Yeah.
2: Speaking of people who do Beatles soul jazz versions, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. does the I love the Rocky Raccoon that he does definitely sean do you have some uh you know speaking of being into this genre do you have some recommendations for similar dollar bin records
0: i sure do so they're doing some kind of some organ sounds here and there on this record which made me think of the in my opinion part of like the the greats of organ soul jazz um you got brother jack mcduff who uh Dropped a record in 1972, same year as this one. The record is called Check This Out. Uh, That's a really excellent record with some amazing drums on it. And pretty much anything Jack McDuff is doing, people can get into. Richard Groove Holmes is another legendary soul jazz organist that I highly recommend. And then uh, Jimmy McGriff is another favorite of mine. He's got a record in 1971 that can be a little bit hard to track down called uh, Groove Grease. But uh, his stuff in general is all over the place and is worth keeping an eye out for. And then uh, I don't always pay attention to this, but usually on Discogs, when you look up an album, if you scroll to the bottom of the page, they'll have their kind of like automatic recommendations, which sometimes is spot on and sometimes isn't. But I thought theres were pretty interesting for this. So I'm just going to read them real quick. You got first up uh, Donald Byrd's Street Lady on Blue Note. Which is like a 20 to $30 album on Discogs, but I have definitely seen that in bargain bins a handful of times. And this whole era of late 60s, early to mid 70s, Donald Byrd is a perfect comparison to this because it's got that hard jazz background, but moving into the soul and funk crossover and doing it perfectly. And then Discogs also recommends the album Sun Goddess by Ramsey Lewis, which we mentioned on the Earth, Wind & Fire episode because it's, it's basically ramsey lewis plus earth wind and fire and then another legendary keyboardist lonnie liston smith his album visions of the new world is a really good one or pretty much anything that he was a part of and then coming from the more uh soul and funk angle i also recommend the new birth coming from all ends which i definitely get behind that recommendation and then uh marvin gaye's soundtrack work for the the film trouble man is a really really good one so there you go. There's a whole list of recommendations to dig in on. Wow.
2: Well, that's a whole lot of stuff that I don't know. So I'm going to look into it myself.
0: Perfect.
1: Peter, you said we needed to set the record straight.
2: Yeah, Jeremy. On our
1: new segment, Set the Record Straight with Peter Cook. <laughs>
2: yeah. So I'd like to introduce a section that we've we've kind of uh, hinted at or joked about. Call it, We're going to call it For the Record. And we pride ourselves on making this a music history podcast that presents accurate information. But since it's conversation-based, every so often one of us will say something inaccurate. And usually we either catch it during recording or editing and excise the misinformation. But every so often something makes it to the final cut. And we just wanted to introduce this new section for the record to set the record straight on I'd Buy That for a dollar.
0: All the mistakes are mine, right? it was all me
2: every single time
0: damn it
1: (laughs) wait really no (laughs) okay i was like i'm almost i felt the same way i was like oh he's just gonna list all my errors cool yeah
2: (laughs) no and and i did not specify who made these errors i'm not gonna focus on that but some of them are me so i
0: want to know who made each error
2: yeah (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, listeners, go find these errors and give us a scoreboard, since Peter won't tell us. <laughs> so on our Beach Boys Today episode,
2: we mentioned that the song I'm So Young that appears on the album and is a cover of the doo-wop vocal group The Students, we said that that was not a hit for The Students. The song did actually make some noise, the Students version did make some noise on the U.S. Billboard R&B charts reaching number 26 in 1961. So it did have some exposure. On our Cindy Lauper, She's So Unusual episode, we stated that Girls Just Want to Have Fun was written by Cindy Lauper. While Lauper did write several songs on that album, Girls Just Want to Have Fun is not one of them. It was written by a guy named Robert Hazard who recorded a demo in 1979. And his version was written from a male point of view. And you could argue, one could argue that Cindy Lauper definitely made it her own by changing it to a feminist anthem, much like Aretha Franklin had done with Otis Redding's Respect a decade and a half earlier. Mm-hmm. On our Roberta Flack Feel Like Making Love episode, we said that Killing Me Softly with his song was referenced in the intro to Old Dirty Bastards' Return to the 36 Chambers the Dirty Version, but it was actually the first time ever I saw your face that ODB references in that cut. In that same episode, the Roberta Flack one, we also stated that there was this dispute between the individuals responsible for writing Killing Me Softly with his song about whether or not it was about witnessing Don McLean perform American Pie in concert. I also want to correct my pronunciation. It's Don McLean, not Don McLean, like I said on that episode, so I'm kind of giving away who made this error. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually witnessing McLean perform the song "Empty Chairs" that Lori Lieberman, who re- who released the first version of "Killing Me Softly," was inspired by. The songwriters Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel backed this story for years. And in the late 90s, they began to change their story, perhaps in an effort to dismiss Lieberman's contributions to the song. She And she never received a, a songwriting credit for the song. I think she kind of gave them some ideas and they wrote the song. As of 2020, Lieberman said she is not seeking money or official songwriting credit. She just wants the world to know the correct origin of the song. So I wanted to correct our slight error in retelling that story. It was not American Pie that she witnessed Don McLean singing. It was the song Empty Chairs. In our Chambers Brothers episode on New Generation, when we were reading Lester Chambers' statement made in 2012, he said he did not receive any royalty payments between 1967 and 1994, not 1944. That would have been a reverse timeline there. (laughs) And on our Diana Ross Diana episode... We mentioned the African-American Neil Diamond impersonator, the Black Diamond. His name is Theron Denson. I wanted to get his full name in there, Theron Denson. And he worked as an assistant to June Pointer. I don't know that he worked, he sang as a backing vocalist. So that wraps up for the record, setting the record straight here on this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I hope that everyone who's been sitting around yelling at us for all that misinformation is satisfied. <laughs>
1: I've been saying Hail Mary's off mic since the beginning of this segment. <laughs> I know at least two <laughs> of those were mine.
2: I think that that sounds about right, but who's counting? Our listeners are counting. I'm counting. Them
0: <laughs> I want to do better.
2: <laughs> well, you know, only the strong survive. So we'll do better, Sean. And and that leads me into the track I'd like to leave us with another Another one for uh, Jerry Butler uh, that was penned by Gamble and Huff and appears as kind of an instrumental slash backing vocals version on the Iceman's Band, introducing the Iceman's Band. And I think that's that's about going to wrap things up here.
1: Excellent. I would just remind our listeners to not be afraid of instrumental albums. They, I think a lot of people don't. By them but they're excellent for even if you don't sit and listen like they're great mood albums for when people are hanging out
0: yeah definitely oh yeah
2: totally like uh you said about the west montgomery album uh, for salsa parties and stuff like
1: that yeah and los indios tabajares
2: oh yeah and occasionally there might be some vocals like on this album or los indios tabajares but you know all the more fun Well. I am Peter Cook. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar.
1: I'm Jeremy Ruggles.
0: And I'm Sean Hartman. I wasn't going to go second. It had to be Jeremy. I was
1: waiting. I'm going to cut the silence out, but just so our listeners know, there was like a 30 second pause there. (laughs) Because I was just waiting for Sean to start talking so I could jump in on him. Yep, and I was just sitting here shaking
0: my head. Nope, not going to be me. Not going to be me. I'm the main host of this show. I have to say my part last. True. Oh, we get we get into the hierarchy. That's right. I'm I'm top of the pile with this one, baby.
2: <laughs> Only the strong survive.
0: Let's hit just, it.
1: Just remember, I do the editing, so I wield the ultimate power.
0: Fair. Alright. Power.
1: Alright, bye everyone.
0: Thanks for listening. We
1: love you.
2: Side two, track three, Jeremy. If and you didn't know.
1: you for listening to another excellent episode of i'd buy that for a dollar we ask you to comment and review and rate the podcast on wherever you're hearing this surely there's like some stars or a little box where it's like comment here if you could just click something there enter something in We got a one-star review, which I have on good evidence that is someone from our enemies list. So we need you to counterbalance that and leave us a beautiful five-star review. Or not, if you don't believe that. But say something. Rate us something. Okay, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.